Welcome to my podcast, Living with Ovarian Cancer. My name is Diane Evans-Wood and I'm one of many women who are living with ovarian cancer. I want to give women like me a voice to share with you what it's like to live with ovarian cancer. We will cover a whole range of aspects related to diagnosis, treatment, recurrence and well, just about everything in between. I hope you find our honest, candid but often humorous conversations not only useful but also uplifting. So without further ado, settle down and listen to my conversation today. Welcome to episode 19. So today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Claire Green, who is a consultant medical oncologist. She happens to be also my oncologist and she's very generously given up part of her day to talk to me. And it's her day off actually as well. So before I introduce Claire, can I ask you to subscribe to the show and rate it five star if you can, please, after you've listened, I ask you to rate it five star because everyone I talk to has a very personal or poignant traumatic story to tell. We're not professional podcasters and we don't make money from this podcast at all, but we're just ordinary people wanting to share our stories to help others. But it really helps the show to become more visible on the podcast platforms. So when you leave a rating and a review, it gets it moves us up the charts a little bit. So think of top of the pops and the um, the pop charts. So anyway, um, yeah, please rate and review. That would be really helpful. So on with the show. Hi, Claire. Hello, Diane. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. You're looking well. How are you? Oh, yeah, I'm doing all right. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Everybody says I look really well, but really I've got, I cheat because I've got one of those ring lights in front of me that gives me an even skin tone and makes me look <laughs> like wonderful. But yeah, oh, I must get one. I must get yeah. one. <laughs> oh, I recommend them. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know it's your day off and it's also your birthday. So oh, happy well. birthday. Thank you. Thank you. I just want, the, I want this one to pass. It's not a big one or anything. It'll just uh, come and go. But it is a day off. So that's nice. Yeah, it's a special day regardless. Anyway, <laughs> to begin with, Claire, can you tell me just a little bit about you, where, where you live, um, family, um, hobbies, if you ever have time for any hobbies? <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm really lucky. I live in the New Forest. Um, so really what I like to do when I'm not working is take my dog out into the forest long walk um, we've got a crazy cockapoo who just seems to have endless energy so no matter how far we walk he's always keen for for more and lots of my friends who live around here also have dogs so we, we, we often yeah. sort of like tie up walking a dog together and having a chat mm-hmm. and then ending up in a dog friendly pub for a coffee or something afterwards so that's really um, yeah. how I spend my spare time I do I do play the piano um, yeah. and my daughter's learning so I'm sort of trying to relearn alongside her and I sometimes find myself having a little 10 minute um tinkle at the ivories if I'm if I have oh, a bit of time um, yeah, that's so like, therapeutic isn't it really it, really it? is really yeah. really is and I've got some of those favorite songs I sort of like to sort of sit and play if I'm feeling particularly stressed oh. and come on five minutes out and just have a, have a play I've got yeah. three children so life is hectic the oldest yeah. the oldest is 13 and I've got my daughter who's in the middle she's 12 and then the little one who's yeah. eight 
um, and they've all got a busier social life than me. So um, most, <laughs> most of my time is ferrying them here and there and you know, swimming and yeah. hockey and, you know, everything that they're doing as well. So it's, it's yeah. busy home life, but that's that's fine. It's a nice balance between being in work and doing a fairly serious full on job to then coming home and being mum and just rushing around and, yeah. and the kids and, and taking them to their various social events. Oh, I can just imagine, you know, the, those ages. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get much spare time? What how do you, you you're not full time? No, so I don't work. I don't work on Wednesdays, but I'm actually the lead medical oncologist at the moment for Southampton. Mm-hmm. So we have a strategy planning meeting on a Wednesday lunchtime and there's lots of other additional roles that I have. In the, so I, I use my day off to, to sort of pick up all that admin type stuff. And mm-hmm. um, so at the moment, I don't really have that much time off. Yeah, I'm a bit of a workaholic. I quite like to be on top of it. So I don't mind spending that time just tying up all the loose ends, making sure I'm on ahead of the game. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're dedicated to your job. I know that um, people used to say to me, you know, oh, you're so dedicated to your job. And I, I never looked at, this, at it as being a job. No. Um, it's, no. I think to do this sort of work, it can't just be a job. Um, no no it really can't and you have to accept that you know things go wrong in opportune moments and you can't just say well I'll work nine to five I'll deal with it tomorrow mm-hmm. you, know, you have to just exactly. yeah yeah it's people's lives you have to just deal with it and it's as you say it's not a job it's a vocation you go into it and you have to just be yeah. flexible and you know sometimes I'm you know doing emails when my children are telling me something about their day and I can tell that they just think oh you know what's she doing now but you know you just have to do it you have to send that message it's it's important you have to they have to understand that and I think that gives them a good work ethic actually to do yeah. to do a job that's worthwhile sometimes it does interfere with your own personal life but yeah it means that that what you're doing is important yeah exactly yeah. Well, we really appreciate you and I'm glad you're my <laughs> oncologist <laughs> oh thank you thank you Diane it's always a pleasure to look to look after you guys I, I just I really hand on heart haven't got any patients that I've that I just mm-hmm. think oh you know obviously Mrs so-and-so today because it, it's a cliche but part of the reason I do oncology is the worst things happen to the nicest people and it's absolutely mm-hmm. true you know you just, you just your heart goes out to people you just think they're nothing to deserve this you just want to do everything you can to help them and it's absolutely true all my patients yeah. are lovely and you just all of us in the team just want to do what we can yeah well thinking back a few years then what was it that made you want to train to be a doctor in the first place oh yeah that, that's tricky you know at school mm-hmm. um it, it wasn't a great school that I went to only a few of us did a levels and it, there wasn't a lot of aspiration and my parents aren't, aren't medical and and it was it was looking back I think I just enjoyed sciences um mm-hmm. and I was quite you know quite diligent at my schoolwork and I thought what can I do with a level sciences and I quite like maths and I remember having a little career book with a teddy bear on the front I, don't know why. I just remember this little book and I thought what can I do with a levels that are sciencey based and I just flicked through this book and nothing really appealed apart from medicine and I thought mm, I do like and I used to watch documentaries on tv about medicine and I was quite fascinated in it and I thought oh if I'm doing the right a-levels and I quite like all these medical documentaries I think I might do medicine and I remember my mum yeah. saying yeah right you know because we were from quite a rough part of London and you know yeah. nearly nobody went to university and she just thought it was ridiculous but you know yeah. I just I did um, manage to scrape in but grades wise you know I was really low in my year mm. I think they had a quota from comprehensive that they had to allow into the university and I played the piano and the violin and had a few other strings to my bow excuse the pun yeah. um, <laughs> so even with fairly mediocre A-level grades I managed to get into medical school in London 
Um, yeah. And then I thought, you know, you know, you meet people at the beginning of the term and they've all got straight A's and they've come from private schools. And I thought, my goodness, I'm probably the thickest person here. But no. That me, that made, well, that made me work really hard. And in my first year at uni, I worked so hard. And, I, you know, I, I think I got the pharmacology prize or something because I just really thought I had to work double hard because I'd only got in by the skin of my teeth. And then, and then I loved it, really. And it went, it went from there. Yeah. So as a child then, do you, were you were you always the, the nurturing child, the one that would look after the other children? Your yeah, friends? I've got a younger sister. I've got a younger yeah. sister and definitely I was I was think I was bossy rather than nurturing, actually. Um, well, we need that though, don't we? Doctors <laughs> and nurses. We, you need well, what would you call it? Not assert assertiveness, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, decisiveness. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, that's right. So I, but so I think I was always caring and I was in guides and I had like a patrol and I was always looking after them all. Yeah. But yeah, I think my sister would say I'm probably bossy rather than nurturing. So yeah. and again we grew up grew up with lots of dogs and I always remember thinking that animals, you know, I looked after all I like looking after the animals. And then yeah. I think people thought I might be a vet rather than a doctor, but um Oh, yeah. that was me too. Yeah, I always <laughs> thought I'd be a vet. Yeah, but I can cope more with people than I can with animals. You know, if I see an animal in pain, I go to pieces. That sounds yeah. awful, doesn't it, saying that? But yeah, I can cope. I think it's because they can't speak. That's um, right. Most human beings can. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. What was the training that you did to, to train to be a doctor? What is the training that you do? So we do two years of sort of theoretical lecture based work. Um, and then we have an option of doing an intercalated BSc, which is like a science-based, lab-based um, year, um, which I did in infection and immunology. And then there's three years on the wards. And then you rotate round to do, to do sort of six, eight weeks with psychiatry, a um, couple of months with paediatrics, a couple of months in A&E. And you just rotate around every specialty in that three years yeah. um, before taking your finals. So it's sort of yeah. two years theory, three years practical, um, if you like, on the wards. And then this additional year which is science-based in the middle. Yeah. Did you have a favourite speciality at the time in your training? Um, I loved A&E, actually. I really liked A&E. Um, I just loved the fact that you didn't know what was coming through the door. Mm. And it was really helpful to me to do A&E because you know the kind of thing you like to see when you've done an A&E job. If, you, yeah. if your heart sinks when it's a chest pain or a, you know, a pneumonia, you think, oh, I don't want to do medicine. Or if you're, if you're, if you're really excited by, the, by a trauma case, then maybe you, know, you want to go into that. So it was yeah. a really good way of, sort of teasing out which areas of medicine that you like. Yeah. Um, and also the fact that you, know, you just didn't know what each shift was going to bring. You know, it was really mm-hmm. exciting. But then I soon realised that shift work and long-term hours that you'd have to work in, in A&E wouldn't be very conducive to family no. life and, and, and to maintain throughout through your whole career doing that sort of shift work and that you know high adrenaline I think that would be exhausting it was yeah it's very stressful isn't it um, yeah. sometimes I mean it's never I don't think there's ever a quiet day really in A&E no there really really isn't I remember working one Christmas Eve and I was the only doctor on I think from 10 p.m to 2 a.m or something like that and the waiting room was absolutely packed on Christmas Eve and I just thought what what's going on yeah. um Oh, it was it was really really stressful and I think I stood on a chair at one point and I said the waiting time is six hours you know if you've got anything oh, no. if you've got anything that's that doesn't constitute an accident or an emergency I would probably go and see your own doctor or something I think I said that because a lot of the triage cards said you know a cough or a headache or mm. I just I just thought you know I can't see all these people so it was very stressful in A&E but yeah. um, I did I did love it I did love the, the, the variety yeah. 
Um, yeah. I like obstetrics. I liked the obstetrics as well, delivering the babies, because that was yeah. a really magical part of people's lives to be involved with. Yeah. Um, but I had absolutely no exposure to oncology in the whole of my medical school training. Not a job, not a job, no. not nothing. Um, and we've, we've, we've sort of addressed that a little bit, looking back, you know, at mm. where I trained, that we, we don't have any specific oncology training. They sort of rely on the fact that we'll meet oncology patients when we're doing, I don't know, mm. colorectal attachment and we might see a patient with a bowel cancer. Or yes. if we're doing surgery and, and we're attached to a breast firm, we might see a patient with breast cancer. So with, there was no formal exposure to oncology at all no it's a bit like with palliative care isn't it you, you yeah. don't I think it's changing I think you do get I think there is some exposure to palliative care specialist palliative care I should say through the palliative care uh, CNS's and the hospices and the consultants well, that's really good that's really yeah. good because you know it's, it's a fact that most doctors well 50% go into general practice and you have to know palliative care there isn't the hospital specialist palliative care team that you can ring if you're a GP you know you really should be exposed to palliative care during the training yeah back to your training again then can you think of any sort of funny or poignant or sad moments are there any stories because we've all got them haven't we yeah you can think of any at the time because I'm asking you yeah no and honestly don't get me started on on my spell that I did in Africa oh my goodness so in in the second to last year before you qualify you do an elective and you can go anywhere in the world so a lot of people go to America to learn all the latest state-of-the-art surgical mm. techniques or you know somewhere cool um where they can go surfing after after work or something but I thought I'd go to Africa <laughs> because I read I read the report of a person who'd been before me and they got to do so many procedures really get their teeth teeth into it and really be involved in the life of the hospital and I thought you know I'm quite a timid person and I think it would be the making of me if I went and got stuck in and helped out in this African hospital for a while so I it was organized through a Methodist church or a Methodist mission so mm. I turned up and I was picked up by an armoured truck and they took me through the trees to this village and there was no road. So I couldn't kind of I couldn't follow where I was going. And they had a, they had a big gun because I was a white person and they thought we might be. <laughs> um, and then we got to the village and the person who'd been before me had been about four or five years ago. And the whole place had declined in that time. Mm-hmm. There was one doctor left and I think somebody who was his assistant and the doctor spoke sort of broken English and everybody else spoke Swahili. And the doctor lived with a houseboy who looked after the house in a a sort of upmarket mud hut, I suppose. And there was no walls and no rooms in this mud hut. So we were just allocated an area of this mud hut. And then we went to work. And after about a week, I'd learned quite a few Swahili phrases, you know, that they had a fever or they had pain or things like that. And then the doctor said to me, I haven't seen my family in Nairobi for years. So can I go for a long weekend and leave you? in charge of the hospital just for the weekend (laughs) and he gave me a sheet of paper of how to do a cesarean in case I needed to and I wasn't even qualified at this point and how to do a hernia repair I think it was yeah Um, and just on these two sheets of A4 paper then he went and then he came back four weeks later (laughs) and I was in charge of this African hospital for four weeks and I couldn't speak to anyone and the houseboy was funny because I go to work in the day and there was nowhere to lock anything and you know, I had my rucksack full of stuff and he would give it out to the villagers because it was all a kind of share everything you've got type philosophy in this little <laughs> 
poor African village. So I'd see kids walking past in my T-shirts. And um, one of the nurses that I was really good friends with um, went, I went to her house for a meal and she had my alarm clock sitting on the table by her, by her mantelpiece because it was a, that was the philosophy. So I literally left the village eventually with just what I wore and my money belt underneath and everything else had been distributed. Oh but they had lots of HIV, lots of AIDS. Yeah. They had lots of issues with wild animals that would would attack people and they'd come into the hospital in, in, in sorry states. Fortunately, we had very little medicine and lots of people had malaria and we would just mm. do what we could. And there was two patients in every bed, two patients under the bed, all their chickens and goats that they'd bought from their villages that they didn't want to leave behind. That's um, just another world, it, isn't it? It was just amazing. It was just mm. amazing. And in the in malnourishment, so we just brought these children in just for, for bean pulp type yeah sustenance and but I did have to do one cesarean while he was away yeah. so no, no anesthetic and just follow his a4 written you know yeah. cut here oh dearie me and there was another um, lady that I remember came in with with a big shawl on and uh, it was sort of resting on her arm and I thought well, she's got a baby under there and actually underneath the shawl was her breast and she had a huge abscess mm -hmm. in her breast that then we lanced and all this pus came out you know and it was just incredible the the extent of the illnesses and how advanced the illnesses were yeah. before they would come to the hospital and yeah. sad things as well they you know we'd give them some anti-malarial medica medication but they needed to take it on you know with, with food in their stomach they didn't have any money to buy any food and you know so we were giving them a bit of bread so they could then take their medicines and you know it was just desperate but oh um my goodness but yeah no I don't and then there was a little man sorry I won't I will stop in a minute there's a little man no, no carry on it's so interesting there's a little man used to come and get me at night time if there was a problem in the hospital so I'd be in my mud hut with the house boy and it was pitch black you know you can imagine in Africa and he'd come with his little torch and then he would say to me just step just step over this bit and there would be a big snake coiled up on the ground or you know, just the biggest spider you've ever seen and he'd say just <laughs> walk, just walk around here and he just wasn't ever phased but there was huge mm. And then we we didn't. The other final thing I'll tell you is that we didn't have any running water, so everybody just washed and drank from the river at the bottom of the village, and it was just brown. And cows would be in there, and it would just yeah. it was just awful. So I would decant it and put iodine tablets in it, and probably only sip, you know, half a cupful a day. It was terrible, and I didn't wash in it. So I, I, I literally went home orange from head to toe from all the African dust. Yeah. Um, and I had a massive kidney stone by the time I left because I hadn't drunk enough. Oh, no. So it was just, yeah, it was just the most crazy experience. And I went back to meet my partner in, in Nairobi. We were going to go on holiday and climb Kilimanjaro and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. And, and I met him at the train station. He didn't recognise me. He looked past me about four times. So I must have looked like the wild woman of Borneo. <laughs> <laughs> Hair everywhere, bright orange only one set of clothes you know it was kind of a oh crazy gosh. but then yeah. I came back and I thought you know what if I've survived that I can get through finals and I was more confident and I thought if yeah. I've survived all of that African stuff I can that is quite an adventure I, I can't I feel kind of speechless I, I, it was it was just incredible and I wrote um, letters to my parents and I posted them all when I got back to Nairobi and I put number order on them and my mum kind of got them all in a batch and was reading them going oh my goodness so if I'd known this was all going on I kind of tried to get you out but there was nowhere to really get out there wasn't really a road in and there wasn't really a road mm -hmm. out you had to know your way through all the trees and I just had to pray that the Methodist missionary people picked me up <laughs> when, yeah. they, when they said they would which obviously they did so of course so, yeah. you get back to the UK and then you've got to settle back into your training again 
Yeah, well, and then you go and do, um, I think my next attachment, yeah, I think my next attachment was GP, you know, and I'd be sitting in the GP surgery and I didn't want to belittle what people were coming with, but, you know, compared to what I'd just seen in Africa, I was like, goodness. You know? No, it must have done that to you. It must have made yeah. you view life very differently, really. Yeah, mm. yeah. You know, I think even now my family will say that unless they've got something serious, I've got no sympathy. And I don't know if that stems from just being a cancer specialist where, you know, people have got serious problems mm. and, so a cough and a cold doesn't really register on my sympathy yeah, scale. I know or what you whether, mean. Yeah. Or whether it's from working in Africa, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I sort of expect my, my family to sort of shrug off these things and don't have a lot of... I know, exactly. You, if you were to talk to my son about what I was like when he was younger, you know, <laughs> was working in palliative care, you know, well, you're not dying, you can go to school. Exactly. <laughs> you know? have, have some cowpaw and off you go, you know. <laughs> I'm exactly the same exactly the same yeah. yeah oh I'm sure that children of nurses and doctors would say the same they would have all the same sorts of stories yeah absolutely So it, back into your training again and I'm just wondering then I mean once you've got back into the the swing of things you went back into the GP work yeah so thinking because we're talking about cancer in this podcast is that I'm just wondering whether there were any patients that you had to see in your training where you had to tell them the diagnosis of cancer can you remember the first time was it in your training that you had to tell somebody that they'd got cancer or was that later on I think I was a house officer because we, we all did a general surgical job as our first job and I remember being in um, a big hospital in London and a patient coming with bowel problems and they'd had a colonoscopy and a colon tumour had been seen. And I remember that they came out of theatre and woke up and said what was found. And I, I had to tell them then. But I think it was an easy, easy first one for me because the patient had sort of suspected it. They knew yeah. that they had quite classic, yeah. they'd been PR bleeding and they had pain and they were partially obstructed. So I think they kind of knew something was really wrong. Yeah. So I just had to sort of confirm it really. So I could, but I can remember it because for me, it was a bit a big deal, even if the patient was probably well prepared and and I think yeah. when you're when you're training you you see other doctors telling patients they've got cancer and you pick up on a sort of format that works and a format that doesn't work and yeah. hopefully there's no official training on how to break bad news or to tell people they've got cancer but hopefully you you, you pick up what works and what doesn't from seeing your seniors do it so when you have to do it you have a bit of a not the exact script but a format in your brain that you how you want to deliver that yeah 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 it's it's not easy you always remember the first time you had to tell somebody that bad news and I remember my I remember my first time and I cringe I think oh why did I do that but you it, it comes with experience doesn't it I think yeah. and confidence in being able to talk about something that is incredibly life-changing and difficult yeah um, yeah I think we, I, find it, I think I think I find it harder now as an oncologist to say there's nothing more we can do than say yeah. you have cancer because I can always follow the you have cancer but we're going to do the x y and z and we've got this yeah. this option of treatment that option of treatment but when it kind of comes to the other end of the line when we're saying to patients you know, you've had all this treatment and there's nothing more we can do yeah. that's much much harder for me and that's where palliative care step in usually but yeah. um that's the harder bit I think yeah you, you want to have the answers as, as, the, as the doctor don't you you want to be able to say yeah. that you know it's it's relapsing it's coming back but don't worry we've got this other treatment but then when you can't say that anymore that's the hardest bit 
It is. You always want to be able to give somebody hope, don't you? And that you can do something. Yeah. But actually, you know, it's not that you can't do anything at all. It means passing somebody on maybe to specialist palliative care and they can always do something. Yeah. It's not sort of, you know, it's it's not going to cure somebody and it's not going to um, prolong their life, is it? Whatever treatments that you might give them. And we come to the end of that and there are no further treatments, then I always feel there's, there is, it, I know that doctors say, well, there's nothing more that we can do for you. But I always feel there is something that somebody will be able to do for them. Mm. And, you know, there is, there is always that hope for a better day. And I think. Well, yeah. The way I phrase it now is then um, just like you say, with experience rather than just saying there's nothing more we can do. We've I've sort of learned to change my language a little bit to say yeah. things like what we need to do now is shift our focus from trying to treat the tumour actively to say, what are the symptoms you're experiencing? What are the problems in your day-to-day life and how can we address those and shift our focus on to helping you live alongside Mm. the cancer. And that's kind of the language I use now. And then obviously we talk about the the kind of palliative care um, options that there are. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Mm. so it is definitely the language, but I don't find it hard anymore to say to somebody they've got cancer because I've got options and because it used to be that when patients heard they had cancer, that was it, wasn't it? They didn't imagine that there would be long for the world but now we can honestly say especially in ovarian cancer there are very many good treatments and prognosis rolls into years and years yeah i don't find it as hard anymore yeah um, because there's so many so many positives we touched a little bit on what made you want to go into oncology so i mean obviously you didn't do anything like that in your training oncology wasn't a speciality that you went into but was it just was there an opening that came up and you thought oh I might give that a try and then you you just got hooked um yeah so it did happen a a little bit stumbly like that yeah so when we first qualified we had to do six months of medicine and six months of surgery so I knew I didn't want to do surgery um so I knew I wanted to do medicine so then you go into a medical rotation so I think I did care of the elderly for six months and then I did some diabetes work for six months and then I was in in um, London doing infection and immunity for six months and so I worked in a massive center for um HIV and AIDS patients mm-hmm. all funded by Elton John it was incredible they had their own chef wow. it was it was amazing we did a lot of tropical medicine as well people coming from exciting countries with dengue fever and weird things but a lot of the work was inpatient work with HIV and AIDS patients yeah Um, and they they get lots of lymphomas carposis sarcomas lots of different Mm. tumors because their immune system is low and it fascinated me that these people would have horrible tumors on scans and then we'd give them chemotherapy and it melted and they got better and so I got really hooked into the oncology pharmacology side of it doing that HIV job um, so I left the rotation and got a job as a standalone six months doing pure oncology with yeah. an oncologist called Alison Jones in London. She's famous for, for treatment of breast cancer. Yeah. And then, and then I loved it being part of that team. Yeah. And, and um, so that was it. Then I, then I found myself an oncology training post yeah. and I went from there. And gynae oncology specifically, was there a reason that you went into that speciality, Claire, or was it just that there was an opening and you thought, yeah, I'll just go for that? Yeah, no, again, we, we go around our oncology training about for about four years doing all the different tumour types so that we can train in all of them. And then I was just inspired working at Mount Vernon with Professor Rustin and Marcia Hall, and I was with them for a year. And 
that was it. I just, I just loved Guyney and, and working with them and wanted to sort of stay in that field. It was really the inspiration of working with them. Yeah. 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 So, you know, so if, if I was ever to see, I, mean, I think Professor Rustin's retired now, but I still see Marcia Hall. And if I'm ever in London, I always go and say hello. Yeah. Mm. Oh, and you know Susie Banerjee, don't you? As yeah, well. so Susie was my junior. So when we were working as a team, which that was in the Marsden, that was at the Marsden mm-hmm. on the bone marrow transplant unit. So I was the registrar and she was the SHO. So she's now yeah. way, she's way overtaken me and become, you know, a really eminent doctor in the Marsden. But we met at the Marsden and she was, she yeah. was the SHO, yeah. She's doing some amazing work with low grade at the moment as well. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Yeah, she is. She's absolutely fantastic. And I, yeah. I don't know how she fits it in with family and everything, but she is. And she's a very, very smart, bright lady. You know, you could tell that way back then, you know, she was ahead of her time even then, you know. Yeah, we do. T- we take different paths. But then, you know, you're very smart and very intelligent and all the rest of it, Claire. So we just take, take different paths, different opportunities, don't we? I think so. I think, but people like Susie who stay at the stay at the Marsden are very research driven. Mm-hmm. You know that, that that is a that is a type of oncologist, and that, that she's very much yeah. forward thinking, science based. You know, so that that's yeah. And I think I'm more people based. Yes. But, um, but yeah, totally. That's the way medical oncology moves forward, though, with the science and the the trials. And so yeah, hats off to it Susie. Does, and people like that. Yeah. yeah. Is there any specific training to become an oncologist, a, a medical oncologist? Or so we have to do four years of, of training. So we get our a registrar post in, in medical oncology and then we have to do training in colorectal cancer and breast cancer and sarcoma and lymphoma. So we have to rotate around all the different cancers during about a four to five year period um, until we then take an exit exam to then qualify. And most people take two or three years out in the middle of their registrar training to do an MD or a PhD, um, which is, which is often lab based because really that's the way medical oncology moves forward with, with new drugs and new research. So um, it's, it's, it's obligatory really now to have an MD or a PhD in a sort of research based field. And there are so many scientists out there that as you go through your medical, your medical oncology training, you, you sort of latch onto somebody who's got a research project and you can, do for a couple of years and help them out and write it up and then you come back in and do your clinical training again yeah it is fascinating how things have changed I feel you know um mm. I mean we'll we'll probably touch on that a bit later <laughs> but, mm. um so we're we're talking about ovarian cancer for this podcast and I'm just wondering then when patients are suspected of ovarian cancer, what can they expect in terms of diagnostic investigations? And, and also, what kind of symptoms would, would draw alarm bells, do you think? I mean, obviously, when people come to, when ladies come to you, they have, they've got a diagnosis. So obviously, you know, you're then looking at what the plan of, of treatment is going to be. But are, what are the main signs and symptoms are there? Are they? And, and also then what diagnostic investigations would a, a lady expect to have? Yeah, so so we're, as you say, lucky. We've, we, we have people that are at the end of their diagnostic pathway when they come to us, but mm-hmm. it's such a common story that they, they started off with really vague symptoms that they themselves probably put down to a hundred other things. I've eaten something funny or yeah. I've got a bit of diverticular disease and it, it's so vague. And then even then they've gone to their doctor probably two or three times often and common things are common. And the do- doctor said the same thing. It's more likely to be your bowels. It's more likely to be, let's try some laxatives, you know, so 
quite a lot of times people have been back and forth to their doctor because the symptoms are so nondescript so most people are good at picking up pain but but often there isn't pain it's more mm-hmm. the constellation of being bloated and off your food so I think you know we always we all eat a bit too much sometimes and get a bit fatter but if you're off your food but your clothes are getting tighter that's mm-hmm. that's a worrying sort of set of symptoms yeah. um, and then there's often bowel symptoms which as we've said are difficult to differentiate from yeah. other common conditions yeah. but I always say to my patients when when they've had their initial treatment and they're in follow-up and worried about missing a relapse I say I say to them you know if your bowels are upset for a couple of days then it goes back to normal or you feel bloated mm-hmm. for a couple of days and it goes back to normal that's probably your bowel just working through something that doesn't agree with it yeah. but if your symptoms come and they stay and they're there a couple of weeks mm-hmm. then that is much more sinister so mm-hmm. it is so it is bowel upset and bloating and being off your food mm-hmm. for more than a week or so yes yeah yeah that that would would ring the alarm bells and then you would hope people would go to their doctor and their doctor would see that as a worrying sign um and usually gps will organize a ca125 blood test and an ultrasound yeah Um, and from that those results they're they're, when the ultrasound comes back as worrying or the 125 comes back as raised patients are referred in on a two-week wait pathway so the gps know they can access the specialist mdt um, within, within two weeks and then they'll have a CT scan. And then we decide as an MDT what the best course of action is. Okay. Um, so usually if they've got a big dominant ovarian mass, it will be surgery first. If there's more disease that's scattered about, then it will be a biopsy first and coming to see me for treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think, yeah, I mean, I was very, very lucky. Um, as you know, with, with my GP, I don't know whether it was because I was a nurse and I was really very, very sure that what she said to me wasn't right. She said that my symptoms of the bloating, fatigue, the lower backache and painful sex was down to menopause. Now, I, I just felt that it wasn't. And so then, of course, things moved quickly with the CA125 being raised and then Straight away, I had an ultrasound scan and I was diagnosed. But, you know, Claire, I'm speaking to so many people out there that are telling me that they are backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards to bowel issues, very vague symptoms. And their GPs are just not doing the CA125. I know it's not a definitive test. It's simple, isn't it? It is simple. You'd think they could just do it. Yeah, no, we hear the same story that, you know, it's... Mm. it's so hard because common things are common and you know if yeah. you're and you're trying to triage it's it's less likely to be ovarian cancer than constipation yeah, or diverticular exactly. disease or like you say menopausal symptoms but it is you would think if people have been back a few times a quick co125 blood test yeah. wouldn't go amiss would it i think we've still got some work to do on raising the awareness um in, in, with with gps mm. but, you know like you say i mean it's most often it's not going to be ovarian cancer um and they probably a lot of gps don't really see ovarian cancer very often no, in their no they say surgery. it'll be once in, a, once in a whole career you'd see yeah. ovarian cancer once yeah. in a whole career but we have a, a network um it's it's the it's wessex you know it's it's portsmouth and yeah. us and paul um and we have a meeting i think three times a year and there's a gp representation on that meeting and we talk about the two-week wait pathway so much because from a surgical point of view from the surgeon's point of view they have tons and tons and tons of two-week refer two-week wait referrals 
you yeah. know bloating query calls this and that and and the majority like you say are not cancer um mm-hmm. and then and then I feel a bit, bit sorry that the GPs then get feedback that they're sending too many people without cancer up and they've got to be a bit more discriminative about who they're sending and then then people are missed do you see what I mean so it's a kind of chicken and egg that we're overwhelmed with two week waits but then we don't want to miss anyone either so we kind of Mm -hmm. want them to come to be screened yeah Um, so I think more screening needs to happen in primary care rather than just this person's got bloating please can they be seen on the two-week wait pathway maybe do some tests and some ultrasounds in the in primary care before sending them in because sometimes they won't have had an ultrasound they won't have had a one two five so it's it's more that has to be done in primary care first no, it's a shame, isn't it, that those two those two investigations aren't just part of the pathway in primary care with the GP. Mm. If they if they were to do that, I think, I mean, you could almost sort of then say for definite whether it's going to be ovarian cancer or yeah. not. You know, yeah, they, they should be, and we're moving to giving the ultrasonographers power to then book the CT because often what happens is yeah. there's delay. The ultrasound's done. The report goes back to the GP. The GP writes the two-week wait referral. Then they come up to the MDT. Then we organise a CT scan. Whereas we're now trying to cut out that part of the loop and say that if you've got a senior ultrasound um, ultrasonographer who sees an ovary that they are really worried about, they can then schedule the CT yeah. straight from the ultrasound. And then the person's in the system and it happens quite quickly then. Yeah. We've mentioned the MDT a few times now. Mm. That's a multidisciplinary team meeting. Mm. And some of the listeners might not know who is involved with with an MDT. So generally, I mean, it might be different in different health authorities, but generally, who would be involved with an MDT? Yeah, so the MDT is key. So it's the decision making part of the pathway. So 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 it'll be a medical oncologist, a clinical oncologist that gives radiotherapy, the surgeons. There's usually two or three surgeons. There's an x-ray specialist, a pathologist, a specialist nurse. And we all sit and have a look at each person's case. So we look at the pathology, if they've had any biopsies, scans, if they've had any imaging, ultrasound or CT. And then we will make a decision about what is the best treatment pathway for them. And it's because we are all kind of on the same page with with all of that it's not a kind of case of we're arguing or anything like that it's just it's just a way of smoothly seeing people through the system so the surgeon will say this person clearly needs surgery up front I'm going to book them into my clinic and I'll say well this person's had a biopsy disease is a bit more diffuse I'm going to give them chemo first then I'll scan them when they've had three treatments and bring them back to the MDT to see if they can have surgery then so we divvy up patients essentially in the MDT yeah no that's really good because I think also it's almost like um, peer reviewing cases as well. But with difficult cases, I think collectively you can come up with a plan because um, yeah. we all get those very difficult, complicated cases, don't we? Where we think, oh, wonder if we should do this or that. And then, of course, with oh, the MPT yeah. involved, it so, makes it so much easier. Oh, completely. What I've just described is the easy cases that probably yeah. we could do without the MDT, but it's just reassuring that we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. But you're right. Yeah. If, if I've got a tricky patient or I think, oh, you know, I wonder if they would benefit from radiotherapy or... Mm-hmm. Their, their bowels about to obstruct let me see if the surgeons will do us will create a stoma and try and preempt that and so we will bring the patients back to the mdt that we want our colleagues input on and it's a weekly meeting and it's so reassuring to have that weekly input from everyone you can catch them afterwards or put a patient's name onto the list just for general discussion sometimes to make sure that you're going in the right direction 
Um, yeah. so it's really, really useful to get all the sort of experts together from their different fields to, to yeah. sort of make sure you're not missing a trick. We had a, a lady the other day, very palliative, who had terrible pain and, and, and risk of an organ rupturing from, from a metastasis in that organ. And she was just worried that she would hemorrhage and it would just, and so I kind of brought her to the MDT for discussion. And one of the surgeons said, well, why don't we embolize the artery feeding that organ? And then that will reduce the risk of hemorrhage. And so now she's having an embolization procedure as a a palliative procedure, but that we wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily have thought of if I hadn't thought, oh, this is a bit tricky. Let's discuss it with everybody. So it is really good to, sometimes somebody comes up with an idea that, you know, when it's just you on your own, you you don't think of. Yeah, I used to love being part of the MDTs. Did you? We used to take our turns going to the hospital MDTs, but it's uh, when when it came to my turn, I just I learned so much. It was oh. yeah. We don't have palliative care in our MDT. It's terrible. Mm. We we have the CNSs. We have we have CNS representation who then often refer to palliative care. If yeah. there's a patient that we feel that you know would be best served with palliative care and no other sort of modality of treatment, but we don't have I think because it's, it's a very, very rare situation, thankfully, that somebody yeah. comes as a new patient to the MDT and straight to palliative care. Mm-hmm. That, um, thankfully, we don't perhaps need them to come on a weekly basis. Yeah, I think um, probably routinely the, we, we didn't go. But if we had palliative patients that were being treated by uh, a medical oncologist, and we'd make a point of going to the MDTs for that reason. So then, of course, we'd take it in turns, whether it was our patient or not, we would go along. But it was, it was just so interesting. But yeah, uh, yeah I take your point. I mean, palliative care, it, it would be quite um, a lengthy meeting, I think, for palliative care to go to. Mm-hmm. Because very often you're not going to get palliative patients discussed, are you, and need no. the, yeah. um, the opinions. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes... I Yes, for some reason we do have patients with multiple bowel obstructions and things that we discuss and can the surgeons help and then palliative care are very involved with those but we tend to feed back after rather than they sit through the meeting to discuss that one person yeah yeah which is much better yeah once once somebody's been diagnosed then with ovarian cancer what sort of treatment then would they expect how would it normally be managed um, for a newly diagnosed ovarian cancer patient yeah, so we would um, discuss it, discuss their case in the MDT, like I say. And the most important thing is staging, first of all. So staging is the how far the tumour has spread. So that's based on the CT scan. Yeah. Um, if it's if it looks like it's stage one, so just confined to the ovary, yeah. or stage two, maybe on both ovaries, but all confined in the pelvis, yeah. then they would almost certainly have surgery um, up front, um, and so go off to have their initial operation. Then depending on what the pathologist finds under the microscope, if the tumour looks aggressive or it has managed to escape from the ovary a little bit, they would have some chemo afterwards. But it would be definitely surgery would be their first step. For stage three, when it has scattered around the abdominal cavity. So we I always describe ovarian cancer as being like a dandelion. So it grows on the the ovary and it's like like the wind when you blow a dandelion scatters the seeds around. So if you've got that sort of picture where you can see a lump on the ovary, but there are smaller scattered bits in the omentum, which is the apron of fat that we've all got on the front of our abdomens, or it's causing ascites, the fluid that builds up. Then we know there's lots of little seedlings of the tumour scattered everywhere. So the surgeon with the best will in the world wouldn't be able to remove all of that. So that patient would be better served having a biopsy. So we know what kind of cancer we're dealing with. 
the commonest being high-grade serous cancer, yeah. but there are many other types. Um, so they have a biopsy to prove that they unfortunately do have cancer and they come to me first. Then I would say, let's give you some chemotherapy with a response rate that's really, really good, 70, 80%. Shrink down all these little tiny nodules, get rid of all the fluid, make it a nice you know, contained field for the surgeon to then go in after maybe three cycles or four yeah. cycles to take away the ovary or any bulky disease that remains. Yeah. They would always take away the uterus, both ovaries and this omentum, and yeah. they tend to be where the tumour likes to lurk. And then yeah. we finish chemotherapy afterwards. So that's called interval surgery. Yeah. Um, yeah. But and, and similarly, there are sometimes stage three patients with a big dominant mass and only a few scatterings who are best to have surgery first. And then we do the chemo after. Yeah. Then there are unfortunately a few patients who are stage four where the disease has spread into the liver tissue or up into the chest. So the surgeons wouldn't be able to remove it in entirety. Yeah. And so we give just chemotherapy on its own as a, as a more of a controlling measure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my experience since being diagnosed with ovarian cancer is that in the in the cancer community, a lot of ladies with ovarian cancer present at stage three. And mm -hmm. um, that just seems to be that's just, the commonest. That's yeah. the by far and away the commonest stage. Yeah. Yeah. Stage one sometimes present with pain, like if it twists the, the, the cyst on the ovary, or yeah, um, or, or like you say, they have some painful sex and they go and investigate that, or they're having fertility treatment sometimes, sadly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's discovered stage two is rare as hen's teeth because you know once it's spread from the surface of one ovary it very rarely stays in the pelvis very long before it's scattered outside the pelvis and around the abdomen so stage three is definitely the commonest yeah yeah but with, but with surgery and chemotherapy there's still a 20 percent cure rate with yeah. stage three so it's still yeah. a hopeful situation yeah it is it's easy for me to forget that because i'm in i'm immersed in a community where ovarian cancer has recurred yeah. um, I mean obviously ovarian cancer is notorious for recurring we know that but I tend to forget there is a chance of cure so it's good to remind me of that yeah. thanks Claire yeah so um, those, those initial patients that we meet like I was saying before it's it's not that difficult to to talk about them having cancer because mm -hmm. there's still a chance of cure there's all these different treatments that we have it is much harder to talk to patients who have recurred occurred yeah. again you know and they just lose yeah. a bit apart and we and we know that once it's come back once we can't get rid of it so yeah. we have to change our mindset slightly from hoping for cure and going all out to thinking right you know this blooming thing is just going to keep coming back so how can we sequence your treatments so that you get the best quality of life between treatments the best response you know what's what's going to be the best way to to still give you a really good prognosis of years and years but but be facing the fact that we can't get rid of it and it will just keep yeah. popping up that's right it's a balancing act isn't it the more recurrences that you have and the more treatment that you have you, you start to to feel like you've exhausted treatments mm -hmm. it's then a balancing act between well it's quality of life and quantity of life isn't yeah. it really yeah. yeah yeah I would say to patients it's like weeds growing in the garden the weeds grow we put a bit of weed killer on the weeds die off for a while and then the blooming things come back up again and you have to get the timing right to to retreat with more chemotherapy so that patients have had some break and they have some quality time and actually when the longer break you can have the more the tumor forgets the chemo drugs as well so they work better if you can just keep because a lot of people get worried about their ca125 levels and they start mm. to rise really slowly and then they have a panic right i need some more chemo but actually if they're well and they haven't got any symptoms it's just treating a number 
And if yeah. you can stretch out the time before you have to start the next chemo, it gives the body time to rest, the tumor time to forget the drugs. And it's and, and, the, and then ultimately the prognosis is, is better because you can yeah. stretch out the time between treatments. But it's a really hard concept because the one, two, five is what we're using as a monitor. And if that yeah. starts to rise, of course, panic sets in. And yeah. then you then you feel like you're living with this sort of Damocles. And what will the one, two, five be next time? And this whole mm-hmm. pattern of anxiety sets up. Um, and yeah. it's really hard to get patients into that mindset of it will come back at some point. So we'll only treat it when it's causing symptoms. Yeah. Just treating it earlier means we're using up options quickly, putting your body yeah. through more treatment that you that will, will inevitably make you feel poorly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you've made a really, really good point. I'm glad that you touched on that, because I think in the ovarian cancer community, we are all focused on the CA125. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just goes up to two points and you think, yeah, oh, my God. Panic. But without symptoms and and it's very difficult to say to to people don't panic because yeah. you know you've got time yet you've got no symptoms but it's the only thing we've got to go by because yeah. without being able to see a ct scan which we don't want to have them every month do we or every three no. months all the yeah. time the ca125 is the only one thing mm-hmm. that we've got to go by yeah yeah, we need to listen to our bodies, don't we? That's it. But it's really English. hard to do that. It's really hard to do that because that figure, that one, two, five figure, is what you can hang your hat on. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you think, oh, "Am I more bloated? I'm not quite sure. My tummy does feel a bit rumbly and painful today, but is that because I had, you know, jacket potato skins yesterday? You know, so you you really try. It's really hard to hang your hat on any of your symptoms. It's the one, two, five that is the easier thing to go on, but it's. It's, it's quite, yes, it's very anxiety provoking and, and detrimental just to treat patients based mm-hmm. on, a, on a number. And when I worked with Professor Rustin, you know, this, this chap I spoke about as being my inspiration to go into gynae, we did a study when I worked with him as his, as his registrar, it was called OVO5. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was dividing patients into two groups once they, they'd finished their initial treatment. And in one group, we measured their 125 regularly, like we're doing clinic now. In the other group, we didn't measure it at all. No, not at all and we just went on symptoms and if they were symptomatic we would measure it but yeah. if they had no symptoms we wouldn't measure it and we found that the anxiety levels and the quality of life of the group that we weren't measuring was so much better we picked up relapses about five months earlier in the ones that had well, we were measuring their one two five and their treatment started five six months earlier yeah. so they'd lost five or six months of quality time but then neither group lived longer so it didn't affect your outcome it just meant that you were more anxious, you had more blood tests, you had chemo early. Mm. Um, and so he really was trying to stop patients having one, two, fives in regular follow up. And if you go mm-hmm. and have him, him as your oncologist now, he doesn't measure your one, two, five as, as, as follow up. Yeah. So and I tried that when I moved to Southampton, I tried to say to patients, let's stop mo- measuring your one, two, five. And, you know, it didn't go down well at all. So we are back to just as a knee jerk measuring one, two, fives. But actually that study showed that it just creates anxiety, brings forward your next chemo and doesn't affect how long you live for. Yeah. But, but we, you know, human nature, we can't help it. If it's something we can use to monitor our disease, we want to want to yeah. know, don't we? Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really going to be very helpful for a lot of the people listening to this. I think. Yeah, it's called OVO5. It's, you know, mm. you can Google it and have a look. Yeah, yeah. I will do. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there have been lots of changes I think as well in treatment of ovarian cancer I know when I was nursing over 30 years 
cancer um, was, you know, that hushed up cancer, and you knew that they weren't going to do very well, the patients that were diagnosed. But over that 30 years, I saw the survival rates go up so much. So look, thinking about ovarian cancer, what are the changes that you've been impressed with most with treatments? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's fair to say we've had things like carboplatin for donkey's ears, literally donkey's ears, and then taxol, <laughs> yeah. for, and taxol for 20 odd years, you know, so we really nothing changed for ages and ages. But thankfully, it, it was a chemosensitive disease. So yeah. we weren't up against the, the, the like things like pancreas cancer, melanomas that just, just don't respond to chemotherapy. We were, we were yeah. never in that dark field. So we still had a relatively chemosensitive disease but um yeah. and then things like avastin came along um yeah. which was a new way of of treating and we we saw ascites dry up with within one treatment um, and then we amazing. were allowed to, it yeah. was amazing it really was amazing and then we were allowed to give it as a sort of maintenance yeah. and then and then that was helping with that holy grail of stretching out between treatments and adding adding together those remission times where you know then that meant overall survival was better so yeah. um, avastin was a big step forward and then maintenance treatment in general is really helpful because I think we all accept that if the first bite of the cherry doesn't cure us and we're going to be facing with this relapsing remitting course for a number of years yeah. holy grail is to get that maintenance period of time where you've got good quality and it's as long as possible so the PARP yeah. inhibitors and, and the Avastin the maintenance treatments have really made the biggest difference over the last few years yeah they're well tolerated in general and they um they do they do stretch out that time between before you need the next chemo yeah, I think the biggest, the, the biggest um, I, treatment really, well, I think the biggest aspect of um, cancer care for me, particularly with ovarian cancer and watching what's happening with that, is the targeted therapies. Um, they're working on, on a genetic level, um, gen, um, looking at what genetic mutations there are and then targeting. And it is amazing the work that's that's been undertaken at the moment. And it's yeah. For, yeah. for a rare cancer like the one I've got, and a lot of the people that listen to this podcast um, in the low-grade ovarian cancer community, you know, we're, we're watching and, and hoping it has mm. give us, given us more hope having these targeted therapies. Yeah. yeah, well, the PARP inhibitors are the first ones, aren't they? Because they're, yeah. they're BRCA mutated, genetic mutated uh, tumours. Yeah. Um, and there are other targets coming through and you can get whole genome sequencing now to sort of say which mutations you've got. Most of, most of the low grades have got P53 and mm. things like that that we haven't really particularly got a targeted drug for yet but like you say that's that's going to be the future to look at each individual tumor see which yeah. mutations that particular tumor has and which targeted treatments there are around for that i mean there's um there's a study going on at the mars at the moment called the atari study for clear cell um yeah. tumors because clear cell are notoriously difficult to treat and resistant yeah. conventional chemo and they're looking at a, a genetic loss in a protein to target that particular mm part of the of the of the genome so it is it's it's yeah. going to be the, the future and we're still quite in the foothills you know ovarian cancer with it all but, yeah. but it will be the way forward and it will pick up and things like immunotherapy again ovarian cancers have been a bit left behind we, we've, we've done a few studies with immunotherapy it has been a bit disappointing yeah. but it's taking off in things like endometrial cancer um so i think yeah. for ovary it will be the targeted molecular yeah. treatment yeah. and then the immunotherapy more for endometrial cancer do you think we'll ever get to the point fairly soon where we'll 
we'll start to do genetic testing of tumours for recurrent cancers, ovarian cancers. Yeah. We're yeah, not so quite we're, there, are we yet? Not, so it's called somatic testing when you test the actual tumour itself. So we've okay. started doing somatic testing in everybody who's been diagnosed looking for homologous recombination deficiency, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's a number of different, oh, it's, it's basically looking at the ability of the tumour to repair itself. So the BRCA genes are um, genes that code proteins that repair DNA in tumours. And yeah. all these, these genes that are umbrellaed under that homologous recombination um, deficiency umbrella all help the tumour to recover and to, um, to repair. So if patients are deficient in any of these, then yeah. they're going to respond better to things, things like the PARP inhibitors. So at the moment, we're just testing for homologous recombination deficiency, so the ability yeah. of the tumour to repair itself. But, but then that is just one, probably about half a dozen things that are being looked at in the tumour, but there are also opportunities to send whole tissue blocks off for whole genome sequencing now. Yeah. Um, so I think it's coming in as routine for things like sarcomas and some of the paediatric tumours. And so for a patient who's got a very odd family history of cancers or who um, the, their pattern of disease doesn't really fit, we are now already sending their tissue off for whole genome sequencing just to see if there's anything else in their genome that we can pick up. And I think that will happen more and more and more. Yeah. And aside from the homologous recombination deficiency, genes will start to test other genes. So we already know P53 is important and we already know other genes. So I think it will come more and more and more. Probably within the next 10 years, we'll be doing you know lots and lots and lots of different genetics and different molecular targets oh, that would be so good to see because i'm sure it will help us then in choosing which treatments um, oh, yeah. go for you know and yeah give us some hope yeah so i'm i've taken up a lot of your time we're nearly at the end now that's right no it's been and nice it's gone very quickly <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me what's what's the most rewarding part of your job claire I think when, it, when you meet that new patient that has got a big tummy full of ascites, hasn't been able to eat for a while, feels wretched, you know, thinks, oh, my God, I've now got cancer. I'm just not going to get through this. And you can say to them, no, actually, this is a very treatable kind of cancer. I can promise you that we can get the fluid out, treat you within two treatments. You'll be feeling better. And then they come back to clinic in yeah. that two weeks, that two cycle time. And their, their fluid hasn't reaccumulated. They're feeling better. They're eating. Mm -hmm. And you can just see that they're just a different person. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of confidently say that that's likely to happen. Whereas when you meet them, they just can't believe they'll ever be better. Yeah. So I can brilliant. see in your face that brings you joy. Yeah. That's oh, brilliant. When you you're meet so dedicated. Oh, oh, I just, oh, I love having you as my oncologist. Oh. <laughs> right. We've got three questions left. They're just fun questions, okay. nothing medical, just something really nice to end on. Okay. Where in the world would you say is a must to, to visit in a lifetime? Oh my gosh. Two places, I think. Um, New Zealand, I lived for two years and I loved Milford Sound, which is in the south part of the South Island. Right. And it's, so a sound is when you've got a sort of a stretch of water that's walled off on three sides. So it's seawater. Yeah. Um, and the very far end is, there's a connection to the sea but it's beautiful and it's got waterfalls coming down the sides and seals swimming and there's a place called Milford Sound and you can get boats and sleep overnight mm -hmm. on boats and it's tranquil and you can as like I say it's dolphins and it's just the most amazing place oh, that's in New Zealand yeah. in New Zealand in general I love but Milford yeah. Sound in particular and then the other place it just, it just took my breath away was Petra in Jordan right so, so we were in Israel on holiday and you could get a trip to Jordan across the border. You walk through a kind of craggy 
hole in the rock if you like it's like a pathway and then suddenly in front of you cut out of the rock is the most huge temple that goodness knows how the people at the time made it um, and it just comes out of nowhere you're just walking through like a wilderness in this little crevice and then suddenly there's a huge temple that's been carved yeah by, by ancient people god knows and it just honestly takes your breath away so if you like things like you know ancient egypt and all the things yeah. petra honestly you, you you'll just be you know goosebumps blown away yeah. kind of oh you've you've sold them to me <laughs> <laughs> i know you might not get time for reading very much apart from maybe medical journals but are there any books that you'd re- recommend to people to read um, well, I'm reading one at the moment um, called The Island, and it's about um, Spinalonga, which is an island off of Crete, right. um, where long sort of at the time of the sort of Second World War, there was a leprosy colony on the island. So I know it's a bit morbid and a bit medical, but it, it's about this 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 leprosy colony, and it's fascinating. There's a, there's a lady who has to leave her family to go and live there because mm-hmm. that's how they got rid of leprosy at the time, just to right. basically isolate people. So that's an, that's an amazing book. And because I went to Crete on holiday and I could see Spinalonga, the island, from where I was, yeah. and someone said to me, there used to be a leper colony over there, and there's a whole book written about it. I thought I'll read yeah. that, and it is. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and the other book that really stands out that I haven't, I didn't, I don't think I've read it for 20 years, but I still remember it. It was, was called The Hab Theory, H-A-B, Hab Theory. Um, and it was written by a scientist who believed that every sort of 6,000, 6, 7,000 years, the whole world spun over on its axis. So where the ice, the polar ice caps are, mm. it's spun around to where the equator is and yeah. vice versa. And he's actually got proven science in his book where things like there's a big dip in the Sahara Desert where the ice cap uh, melted yeah. and created like an impression. And there's woolly mammoths with food still in their mouths, instantly frozen yeah. and preserved where the ice cap suddenly um, and so he's tried to sort of say that he thinks there's there's merit in this this theory mm. that every six seven thousand years this, the whole world spins over and at the end of the book he's in a plane and looking down and the whole world spins so you don't know did he survive because he's in a plane or <laughs> there, was, there was all these sort of romantic and sort of personal webs going on in the background of, of this yeah. scientist as well but yeah it was it was a fascinating book and it sounds you know, it part of you thought hmm, does, does it, would it happen you know he'd written it yeah. in such a convincing way and put his evidence through in a such a convincing way I think it was called polar shift or something and then yeah. and other scientists have since said there's probably some merit in it but that was yeah. it doesn't make sense now does it because it involves the polar ice caps building because because they get thicker and thicker with ice and then they flip yeah. over it's the now opposite, they, isn't it now they're melting <laughs> they yeah. don't, they don't yeah. get much water but 20 years ago when I was reading it I was like wow this is yeah, this, yeah with my scientific interest I was like wow this is a great book <laughs> oh it sounds fascinating oh so your last question, if you could have a dinner party and, and invite famous people to join you, Claire, who would you invite? Now, you can choose people that would be alive or dead. Yeah, yeah. I'd be a bit, I'd be a bit weird. I'd, I'd invite really weird people. Like, I'd love to meet Gandhi. Yeah. He, he's really yeah. fascinating because, oh, you know, the things he did. And uh, um, I'd love to talk to him about his philosophies and yeah. And why he thought that you know he could change so much by doing hunger strikes and why he was so calm and how yeah. and what what goes on in his head you know I'd love to chat to Gandhi and I'd love to chat to Tim Peake you know the chap that went yes. up to the international yeah, space the yeah he's such a cool guy isn't he and he he really yeah. brought space back to us and made made it real and he mm-hmm. seemed to be just such a genuine nice guy and he's you know, he's got he's very relatable he's got family and yeah. kids and you just think wow and you've been to space and I'd love to have a chat to him as well yeah 
and then I'd probably love to have Prof Rustin or Marcia Hall over as well because you know, mm. I always like to see them and yeah so oh, it's that strange. sounds brilliant that strange does. mixture Tim Peake and Gandhi but you know yeah. they, they yeah. That sounds cool. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for your time, Claire. Oh, and on behalf of everybody in the ovarian cancer community, thank you for all the work, the dedication to your work. It's, it's a pleasure. It's, the pleasure. All my, as I say, the, 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 all my patients are nice. I don't have any exceptions to that. Oh, oh thank you. Enjoy your birthday. Oh, thank you. I think my parents will come soon and uh, might take me out to lunch. You never know. Oh. Thank you for listening today. To hear future episodes of this podcast, please go ahead and subscribe now. I look forward to sharing more inspiring conversations with women who are living with ovarian cancer. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other and enjoy all that life has to offer.